Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, brought to you by Ceres. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. DFD Partners is on a mission to provide asset managers the most innovative, data-driven distribution platform in the industry. Devon Drew, founder and CEO of DFD Partners, understands that diversity in gender, background, asset class, and generation drives inclusion. That's why the firm is dedicated to providing the platform services to those asset managers who may not have the tools and resources to effectively scale. With more than 16 years in the asset and wealth management industry, Drew has raised over $30 billion in client assets under management. His experience with top industry organizations has given him the knowledge and experience to start DFD Partners. Devon will join me shortly, but first I want to say a few words about our sponsor. I'm thrilled to talk about the important work Ceres is doing. Ceres is a nonprofit organization working with the most influential capital market leaders to solve the world's greatest sustainability challenges. Through their powerful networks and global collaborations of investors, companies, and nonprofits, Ceres drives action and inspires equitable, market-based, and policy solutions throughout the economy. To learn more, go to series.org slash podcast. That's C-E-R-E-S dot org slash podcast. At Ceres, sustainability is the bottom line. Hello, Devon, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm glad that we're, we're talking this morning. We got some good news last week. We were ranked by uh, um, U.S. News and World Report as one of the top 10 podcasts out there for financial advisors. So we're, we're talking to the right people this week, I believe. <laughs> Congratulations. That's, that's awesome to hear. Thank you very much. So, Devon, let's jump right in with the questions here. And the first one is, Sustainable and ESG investment management has been going through some growing pains in 2022. And now that the midterm elections are behind us, what do you see as the biggest remaining barrier to growth in this part of the industry? Well, no, that's a great question. And looking at the trends, seeing that ESG is expected to grow to $53 trillion by 2025. But here in the United States, uh, we still have a education barrier uh, for driving <clears throat> for driving flows and awareness within the ESG space. The way I view it is looking at ESG probably should be all very separate, um, you know, very, very separate, but they're included all in one. So, and also the misconception is ESG impact, <clears throat> is ESG DNI, you know, is, you know, is it climate change reform, right? So to having, to having all these separate but large um, aspects of the issue make it difficult for uh, people in the financial community uh, to really have broad adoption, looking at is it inclusive versus exclusive, right? So I just think that being able to, to separate the E, the S, and the G when it comes down to investing, to be able to slot it in individual portfolios is still probably the largest barrier of entry. 
Yes, you know, Devin, I'm, I'm glad you positioned it that way. I've always considered ESNG as a toolkit, uh, a series of measurement systems that can be used and are needed to be used to, to determine the sustainability of portfolio strategies. But it's not an asset class. It's not a portfolio strategy. And um, unfortunately, a lot of people have interpreted it that way. So we'll see how all that unfolds over the next year. I know one of our uh, podcast guests earlier in this year was Anu Shah, uh, and he said that the trend this year is uh, maybe in 2022, we would just stop using the moniker ESG and just call it investing. So we've also just finished the second week of the COP27 summit in Egypt, where the focus on climate change impacts to the financial services industry was front and center. What's your perspective on these impacts to financial services in the U.S. over the next three years? Yeah, thank you for asking that once again. Um, that subject has been top of mind. And in my opinion, I think it's all about balancing the actions taken over uh, and, and taking on the E and the S uh, when implementing climate transition. You know, when you're looking at plans to account for impacts on the developing nations, and more importantly, uh, the vulnerable domestic population, right? When it comes to financial, uh, you know, in the financial services industry and, and actually deploying some capital. You know, in particular, looking at the efforts that, you know, promote a low carbon economy and how that may disrupt an absence of a social plan to promote economic and looking more importantly, social inclusion. So all those have to be taken into consideration within the financial, uh, within the financial services industry. Yes, and I think there's a lot of work being done in that direction. I know we you know, in the banking industry there's a there's a big push uh to to uh not only be very clear about what net zero plans are for 2050 or whenever they're scheduled for by the individual companies, but also to once again uh measure the metrics in the appropriate way along the way to get there and include scope one, two, and three um, carbon pollution as part of that process for the banking system. So that creates some issues in communities, as you said, where the banking system may not be very strong or even non-existent. Is that something that you find is a, a particular problem in, in big cities or in um, particular neighborhoods in cities? Yeah, if you look at some place that may be more underdeveloped but have a larger population, I could see that definitely being, you know, being adventurous. So, you know, so being able to, to account for that um, is, you know, is, is paramount. Okay, good. Now, Devon, there are many different approaches and data analytics systems today for assessing and valuing natural capital. Uh, what's your process at DFD Partners and how important are the technology tools that you use? But let's begin, if you will, by telling our listeners what your definition of natural capital is. Yeah, so natural capital is pretty, pretty interesting because if you look at how the E, S, and G all, um, all play together, natural, uh, natural capital is actually one that sits outside of S and G and only in the E, right? So, so keeping that in consideration and, and utilizing the natural cap, uh, capital as having the, being that key determinant 
of compounding the accurate valuation of natural capital, you know, and that's pricing of the natural resources such as, you know, water, such as air pollution and food. And the prices of such resources vary by region, depending on the level of scarcity. You have to factor that in in order to purpose the tools and instruments when uh, when putting a value on you know the air the you know the air the water and the food. And where are you seeing on a global perspective the 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 most negative impacts uh, for that valuation of natural capital are happening? It, uh, I'm assuming it's in in developing economies which have less infrastructure to deal with those kinds of issues like wildfires and floods and and uh, drought. Uh, where in particular uh, are you seeing either difficulty? and or opportunity related to natural capital investment. Yeah, you said it, you know, you said it correctly for far end, it's, it's develop a more poorly the emerging markets where, where you have, once again, an explosion in population, a rising middle class, but still not necessarily having, uh, having the resources in place. Um, you're having, you know, you're having scarcity in food, you're having air quality, that is, uh, you know, the air quality is, is diminishing significantly. And as the population continues to grow rapidly, um, you're going to still conti- continue to see that negative impact and then negative correlation, but, you know, between the, uh, you know, between all the natural resources. And they, they, I've had a number of conversations with podcast guests in the last year, especially related to the fact that uh, many people believe uh, that in developing economies in Africa, Central and South America, other places in, in Asia, around the world, that the, the populations are poised to leapfrog older technology infrastructure like we have in the developed economies. For example, our gas pipelines, our delivery systems for, for oil and gas, or, or just our built infrastructure, uh, that because the, the cell phone is really the, the instrument or the tool of choice in these developing economies for conducting business, for getting all of your chores done, for making sure the babysitter is going to meet your kids after school, all of those kinds of things are handled essentially by the handheld device. Uh, the, the handheld supercomputer is what I like to call it. And many people in those economies own multiple devices that they use for different uh, sources of, of, of work and, and uh, family care during, during the day. Do you see that possibility where those, the technologies can literally um, leapfrog some of the older infrastructure technologies in the developed economies and accelerate the pace of development in these faster growing um, smaller economies around the world most certainly the best example the best real life example i have of that is you know i know when i look outside my window i see telephone poles right and you're still seeing the telephone poles here i have it you know obstructing my, my views here in my house and then you start going to you start going to some of these these developing and, and emerging and frontier uh nations and you don't see that right because they 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 leapfrog to your point they leapfrog going instead of having landlines and having you know years and years of infrastructure built out to support you know the the telephone right and in in the in having you know dial up internet to just having, you know, from the proliferation of web-connected devices, um, increasing their access to 
a lot of different resources, uh, especially on the financial technology side and communication side within that. So I could first, I could definitely foresee a situation where um, the, the technology the technology um, allows them to to leapfrog to be able to really help with the rest of the you know, rest of the issues. But you know, food scarcity is you know food scarcity and, and water scarcity technology. I mean. Once again, those are those are two big barriers right there, for, you know, for that, especially when assessing that the national capital assessment of these countries. Yeah, the technology, you know, can help with a lot of issues. But, you know, if there's no food and no water and then we're going to have to, you know, create technologies to um, to create, you know, art, you know, some quote unquote, unquote artificial food um, is definitely something to keep an eye on. And then and then also looking at, you know, let's let's go back to africa and, and and how important coal is to the economy and how you know dirty fossil fuel that is and, and you have you know you know you have china's implement you know you have china that's having a a big thumbprint in you know in the african economy so uh so so once again it, it kind of all goes full circle but you know yes the technology will allow them to uh to leapfrog in certain situations but you know if the bread is still buttered with you know with coal and you have you know chinese chinese input in, in what's going on in, in these countries specifically in africa you know it will exacerbate it will exacerbate negativity on their on their national uh the natural capital scores Yes, that's very true. And I'm also uh, going to be uh, speaking to, in a podcast conversation in the first quarter of next year with a company that is using uh, handheld technology platforms interfacing with banking systems in uh, in some of the uh, smaller economies in Africa as a way of bridging those kinds of gaps financially for farmers where they get their crops funded by a local bank for a couple of years because they're using the technologies that this firm has come up with to help them know the cycle for growing, harvesting, and all of that kind of stuff much, much better and much more clearly. So I think there's a lot of potential in these developing economies related to all of these kinds of, of business cycles. Um, and uh, today, uh, when, when in, in my introduction, uh, I mentioned several ways of considering things like diversity. Uh, and that's one way, I think, diversity of technological development. But how? what other ways are you using diversity that DFD Partners uses it to drive inclusion in the asset management process? And uh, please illustrate a couple of examples of this process for our listeners, if you will. Yeah, you may or may not be aware that, you know, in the roughly $85 trillion of globally managed assets, right, worldwide, only 1.4% of those is managed by diverse managers. And we're considering that uh, women in women in BIPOC, BIPOC. However, when you go back and you do the you look at the research, whether it's from the Knight Foundation or the study by Harvard, it doesn't matter whether you're black, white, green, purple, blue, there is no difference in performance within, uh, you know, within fund managers. However, the same study by Knight actually goes and highlights that even though that is the case, women in women and BIPOC fund managers have a 10 times harder time raising capital. And a lot of times when you're looking at that, what is that capital going to be deployed into? You know, whether you're an asset manager or whether you're on the VC side or private equity, 
a lot of that capital is going to be deployed into um, whether it's ESG or underrepresented founders, right? So, you know, looking looking at it from from that standpoint, if we can't help bridge that investment gap and, and help these managers that don't necessarily have the tools, resources, but more importantly, the headcount to to cut through the noise and help them raise the capital that goes to deploy into areas where it's needed, you know, then it's going to be the same the same old cycle. So at DFD, we're we're patenting on our technology that's able to uh, leverage big data across platforms, leveraging artificial intelligence to be able to uh, sift through the noise, pick up some keyword indications to be able to match. Uh, that fund manager that has that product fit with an allocator within, you know, whether that is a private wealth advisor or pension fund or sovereign wealth fund that might have that product need, shortening the sales cycle, shortening the time it takes to raise capital, and also reduce the having the ability to not have to add to expensive business development headcount in order to help them raise capital more effectively and more efficiently. So. Devon, you used the term BIPOC, which I'm not sure all of our listeners are familiar with. Could you tell us what that acronym stands for, please? Yeah, uh, Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. Okay, good. And it's also true, as you suggested, that uh, uh, a number of uh, female founders that we've had as guests on the podcast uh, have said to us basically the same thing, is that women get under... 10% of the total venture capital and private equity funding. And when you look at how women founders perform over a cycle, uh, a, a rotation of capital um, investment, they normally outperform their male, their male counterpoints who are getting over 90% of the, of the capital. So you're right. Mm -hmm. We absolutely need to not only change that, we need to revolutionize that part of the industry, in my opinion. And I'm glad yeah. that you're focused on that uh, at DFD. So, Yeah, and not only are we focused on that, it's in our, it's our DNA. And on December 2nd, we're launching our big initiative, which stands for Bridging the Investment Gap. And it is our mission and vision to raise $1 trillion in diverse manager by 2030. That's fantastic. I, I love those kinds of goals uh, and, and objectives where you've really got to stretch yourself from day one, right, to, to, to achieve them. But you're, you're headed in the right direction. And please, if you can provide us with anything that you have in print related to this new initiative that DFD is launching, so that we can attach it to the podcast program for our listeners to to spend more time on rather than just in our brief conversation. I'd really appreciate it if you could send us those materials and any press releases or news stories that come out related to that as well. Devon, what issues besides climate change do you see having a major impact on how portfolio assets will be professionally managed for sustainability during the next five years? So it goes back to being able to differentiate the EDS and G, you know, and, and you're seeing firms like, you know, BlackRock taking on a chain recently, um, you know, with, you know, kind of with their stance on, on HG. But the way I view it is this, if you take some of the managers that we work with, let's call it, you know, let's call one Adesina, right? And, and you know, an Adesina is a, is an asset management firm that is, Black, Latin-owned, and LGBTQ-owned. Right. Right. And if you look at and if you look at their 
ETF, their, you know, their social justice ETF, right? People want to put these type of products in a certain bucket. So instead of getting 40% of allocation, they're saying, well, this is ESG's impact. We're going to put it in our 5% bucket. However, if you look at their performance, whether it's, you know, whether it's versus S&P or whether it's versus equity, it's a, you know, it's a kick-ass fund, right? So, you know, so, so you know, when it, when it comes to portfolio construction, you know, it's always in the box. Where does it fit? And I think that is the misnomer when you're talking about ESG in the overall portfolio, because it's only, it's, it's, it's only $1, right? So to have, to have, like, how do you, how do you structure it to fit that $1? Right. If it's 60 cents on a dollar, it's 40 cents on a dollar. So I think in, in, in my humble opinion, instead of viewing things as if you as viewing these products as, hey, listen, this is impact. So it fits in this smaller bucket. No, because it is focused on the environment and social change um, in, the, in the governance, because we view the correlation in having those key metrics in place that is going to that is going to result in larger outperformance over time. Now that should be the core of your portfolio, right? So, so I think that once again, going back to education, then positioning is huge, right? Cause if you can position a product like that, which outperforming the S and P, you know, year to date, and we could put that as your large cap blend solution, then all of a sudden you're getting, you know, out of a 60%, out of a 60% equity allocation, you're getting 30% of that, all of a sudden, there's more capital um, in that bucket to make to make change within social impacts. I couldn't agree more. I, I I love I love Addison's approach to their portfolio strategy. I think Rachel is one of the most creative asset managers in the industry, and I completely agree with your perspective on where growth is and the potential for it and how to deploy more and more assets into that. So that's good. Uh, we're, we're very aligned that way, Devon. And so if you could please tell our listeners where online they can find additional information about DFD partners and how can they reach you with questions about the issues that we've discussed in today's program. Absolutely. So on all social platforms, we are at DFD partners. And you can find us at our website at dfd.ai. And then any emails, feel free to reach out to me there and I at info at dfd.ai. Well, thanks again to Devon Drew, founder and CEO of DFD Partners, and to our sponsors, the Series Accelerator for Sustainable Capital Markets. The Series Accelerator is a center of excellence within Series that aims to transform the practices and policies that govern capital markets to reduce the worst financial impacts of the climate crisis. For more information, go to series.org slash accelerator. That's C-E-R-E-S dot org slash accelerator. And to our listeners, join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast. By the way, Devon, have a happy Thanksgiving week. I know you're going to be traveling, so safe travels. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. 